Good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Healed with Seth the Speaker. Uh, hopefully, you're enjoying yourself. You are alive and happy. You're on this side of the dirt. So let's give yourself a nice round of applause. Absolutely. You could have been anywhere, but you happen to be here. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So anyway, ladies and gentlemen, if this is your first time tuning in, Healed with Seth, here we talk about all things healing and to ultimately get to the healed end result. Now, it is a journey. Don't get me wrong. There's a journey. And every day that we are alive, we may have to do certain things. So here is the place where you get some skills and tips to help you along the way. Right. And that's what I love to do. However, the other side of that, if you are in the helping mood, I love to give different resources and different uh, types of training. And the way that you can support that is by going to the Patreon, all right? And if you want to be a Patreon uh, subscriber, please feel free to do so. www.patreon.com forward slash healed. There you will get some exclusive content with me or even me and my uh, guests. And also, too, there's some great opportunities for you to be a part of the second book, the second installment of the Black Collar Mindset, Checkmate. And that's what it is. It's, it's going to be great, guys. And that's going to be a great opportunity for not only for uh, for you to be mentioned in the book, but there's going to be another uh, sweet gem. But once you go to Patreon, you can see how you can be a part of that. But again, that's patreon.com forward slash healed, and you will be a part of the healed circle. So ladies and gentlemen, today, I want you guys to really think about your mind, okay? Your mind, the things that you naturally go through. Have you ever questioned why you feel the way that you do? Um, why you do the things that you do, why you say the things that you do, and how that dictates your 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 relationships, right? Relationships at work, home, or even with yourself. And I'm extremely um, tuned in to this notion as far as understanding who we are, why we do the things that we do, but. So few times do we actually hone in on those things to get the type of help that we need to help us identify our, not, I wouldn't even say it's a shortcoming, but I would say, how do we identify who we are and be okay with it? You, you understand? And how to manage who we are to understand what's the most important thing is our relationships with other individuals, but most importantly, ourselves. So ladies and gentlemen, our guest today, she's about learning how to accept responsibility for her actions and overcoming the victimhood mentality that so often uh, accompanies bipolar disorder, right? And she teaches others how to be proactive in the treatment and care of themselves and their disorders so they can be fully present in their partners, children, and live, and live happy, right, and fulfilling their own lives. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a great honor for me to introduce to you Miss or Mrs. Michelle uh, Reitinger. Correct? I said it? You said it right. Just Ooh. right. 
You know, in the back of my mind, I was like, no, I got this too easy. And I was like, ah, too many teams. That was right. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. So how are you doing this morning? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, no problem. No problem. So please tell our audience a little bit about you. Absolutely. So I was diagnosed with bipolar back in 1998, a month before I graduated from college. And it was something that I had been dealing with for a long time, but I didn't realize it. For a few years prior to that, I I had been starting to experience increasingly difficult mood cycles, but I thought that I was a moral failing on my part. So I was buying self-help books and, you know, setting goals for myself and trying to do all these things on my own and nothing was working. And the problem with these symptoms is it is all in your mind. And so it's very difficult to recognize that what you're experiencing isn't rational or isn't healthy. And it was actually family who recognized it. I I was living in a different state from my parents. And so they started to be suspicious because they would hear from me every single day for, you know, a couple of weeks where I had, I was speaking really fast. I had new plans, new goals, all these new things that I was doing in my life. And then all of a sudden they wouldn't hear from me for weeks. Mm. And, and they started thinking what's, what's going on? Because every time they would start hearing from me again, everything had changed. All of a sudden I had a new life goal, a new plan, a new, you know, and these weren't like little things. I was in college and, and I would go, like, I had one semester that I changed my major six times during the semester, like big changes, like, and, and it all seemed logical and rational in my mind. You know, it all was like, oh, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to do. And, but I was living near an aunt and uncle. Um, I lived with them off and on a little bit during college. And so there were a few times that I actually lived with them so they could see me more closely. And they're the ones that thought there is something wrong. Like there is not, this isn't, this isn't moral failing. This isn't her, you know, going through something. There's something wrong with her. And so they approached my parents and discussed what they were seeing and they talked to me about it. And the year before I got diagnosed, I started thinking, I think there's something wrong with me. But I kept feeling like every time I would have that thought, I'm like, you're just trying to make excuses for what you're doing, you yeah. know? And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I just, but when my when my aunt and uncle approached me about it, my mom and dad talked to me a little bit. And then my aunt and uncle approached me about it. And I started to cry because I thought, I think there is something wrong with me. And so my aunt actually came with me to my first psychiatric appointment. Mm-hmm. And it was a blessing in some ways because I was so severely depressed at that appointment that I was having a hard time articulating anything. I cried most of the time I was there. Um, I, you know, I just was really struggling. And so I actually was misdiagnosed initially because most of the information the psychiatrist psychiatrist was getting was from my aunt. Mm-hmm. So it was her perspective, which is, you know, was helpful, but it wasn't total, you know, totally mm-hmm. accurate. And so I was initially diagnosed with depression and anxiety and they put me on an antidepressant and it made, it caused me to get manic. And so that was when they thought, nope, you're, she has bipolar disorder. Okay. Well, we're here. Look, let's, let's take it a step back some, right? Um, Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And I know that it's not easy to talk about. However, you, you're in a space where you want to help other individuals. So I applaud you for that. Um, But my question is, what was the, incident that you believe was the igniter to saying, hey, wait a minute, something is wrong. Like, did it happen prior to going to school? And you said, okay, I do want to do this. And boom, I'm changing this. I'm changing this, you know, my majors. Did something happen prior to that? Did you find out what the root cause of that was? Well, so I, 
going back and looking at my life, there were actually symptoms of bipolar very early on. You know, I can go back and look in high school and, and track mood cycles. You know, it was, I can look now that I know what I was dealing with, I can go backwards and look at it and say, Oh, I was dealing with it much earlier, but I, I actually went through an abusive marriage. Um, when I was, uh, when I was 19 years old, I was married very young and a couple weeks into the marriage that became emotionally abusive. And then later there was some additional types of abuse, but, um, but that was what kind of pushed me all the way into the full disorder. And that's not uncommon. It's actually quite common for, it's not always the case, but it's very common for people um, who ended up, end up having the full, you know, disorder to have some kind of triggering event, you know, sometimes some, something very stressful in their life, um, some kind of trauma, a lot of times will trigger the full disorder. Um, and so prior, but I didn't, you know, when I, when I got out of the marriage, I was very, very, very depressed. And I was quite depressed for a long time, but it seemed normal to everybody because of what I'd just been through. And so it, it never occurred to anybody that there was anything other, you know, anything wrong other than dealing with the aftermath of a, of a terrible situation. Um, but it was, it was the, the few years leading after that, you know, so it was that I went, I was in college already when I was married. And so I, I already had two years of college under my belt when I got out of the marriage. And then um, I had about, I don't know, half a year that I didn't do any schooling. I was just working, trying to kind of recover. And then I went back to school and, and I started to feel better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was when the mood cycles really kicked in. You know, I, I would, I would go through periods where I was, my mind wouldn't shut off. I couldn't sleep at night. And I just felt like I was receiving tons of inspiration, you know, and, and all of a sudden I knew what my life purpose was and I knew what I needed to do with my life. And, and I would make all these drastic changes. And there were also physical, physical uh, things that would happen when I was, whenever I got manic, I would cut my hair and color it, you know, and I, I had, it was, everybody was watching me do these things and the, the haircuts were getting more extreme. The hair colors were getting more extreme. Um, and, and then when I was depressed, I would go buy new makeup. And I actually, at one point discovered, I had a, I had a, like a Apple box, a large box filled with makeup that had been almost not even used because I, every time I would get depressed, I would buy makeup for myself, trying to make myself feel better, use it a little bit and then put it in the box and never use it again. And then the next time I would get depressed, I'd do it again. So there were some, there were all these little kind of indicators, but nobody was really seeing most of it. And, and mm -hmm. I wasn't recognizing that these were indications that there was actually something mentally wrong. They were just, you know, it was me desperately trying to figure out my life and trying to, you know, figure out how to follow what was going on in my head. And, you know, so, um, and then the other thing that was going on was um, during my senior year of college, uh, when it was, I was very sick. And it's interesting over the years as I've, you know, I've had a number of different doctors, every doctor, when I go through my story with them are shocked that I didn't have a breakdown you know, that they said, I can't believe you didn't have a breakdown. And I think I was almost there, you know, when I got to the point when my, my parents and my aunt and uncle recognized something was wrong, I, I was almost to the point of having breakdown. So oh wow, it was a blessing that I didn't, but absolutely. During, and the thing is, the other thing that was, I was going to say is during that year, um, I was taking like some of my classes were graduate level classes. You know, I was a political science major and I was taking these classes and those types of classes often are entirely dependent on one test or one paper. Mm -hmm. And so I was going through periods of time in that class where I wasn't attending class at all because I was so depressed. Mm 
Mm. And then I, towards the end of the semester, I got totally manic and, you know, I would stay up. I had one paper that I wrote for a Chinese uh, foreign policy class that I, I stayed up for three days straight and just wrote for, I think I wrote for 24 hours straight and turned the paper in and got an A. Like I was on the Dean's list, mm-hmm. but it, so on paper, it all looked good. You know, right. I was proud of the fact that I was on the Dean's mm-hmm. list, but I was very sick. <laughs> right. So, so essentially you would, would you say that you would um, bury the, uh, I, I guess you would overtask yourself and not necessarily healthily in, in a helpful way, manage your. Yeah, there was nothing rational health. about what I was doing. I thought it was rational. Mm. You know, I I was my mind was going so fast. And the thing that's that a lot of people don't understand. A lot of times, people think you know, oh, I know what that feels like. Unless you've experienced manic mind, <laughs> it's really hard to to really fully appreciate what that feels like. You know, if you can see it, a lot of times people can see it because you see somebody like they're talking so fast and they can't Mm -hmm. stop talking and they're not really making total sense. You know, they're jumping from thing to thing. Um, But in their mind, everything's totally rational. It all makes sense to them. Now, do me a favor. Could you explain in your own words, especially to my guests, what manic means? What's an example so, of that? Yeah, so there's two types of mania. There's hypomania, which is what I experienced most of the time when I was early on in my illness. Hypomania is like, I call it putting your mind in overdrive. Mm-hmm. It's like your mind is is wor- working overtime. Mm-hmm. And so your, your brain is working really fast. Your thoughts are coming so quickly that you don't have time to decide if they're rational thoughts or irrational thoughts. And you have a lot of irrational thoughts during that time. Um, I experienced a lot of compulsive behavior. So I felt like I had to do things, um, spending money, which is, but I know as a college student, it was really hard. I didn't have a lot of money to spend, which is actually a blessing when I got older and I had access to credit cards and that, that became a big problem because I would, I would spend our family into debt Mm. during those times, but it felt like I had to do it. It wasn't something where, you know, a lot of people say, well, just don't do it that's, it's really hard not to do it. Like it, you feel like you have to do it, not mm-hmm. like you want to do it, like you have to do it or you will die. Mm. So yeah. the question is, how did you, how did you rationalize that? Like, you know what I mean? You don't need to like, rationalize it. You're not, you're not rational. <laughs> mm. That's the thing is that when you're, when you are in that state of mind, you're not a, in a rational state of mind. When we say rationalize it, it means you're trying to make excuses for why you need to do something you know is wrong. Mm-hmm. In that state of mind, you don't know that it's wrong. It's not, it's not something that you're, you're most of the time when we're, when we're thinking, our mind has time to analyze what's going on. You know, we have time to think, you know, step back and say like, I don't know if that's a good idea or, you know, should I talk to somebody about that? When you're in a manic state, you're not rational anymore. And you're not, your brain, your thoughts are coming so fast that you don't have time to think about them. So when I got further on in my illness and I started to become really aware of what was going on, I started to ask for help. You know, one of the things that my husband and I had to figure out was how he could how he could talk to me so that I wouldn't get angry with him because that's one of the things that's really hard is to not feel offended or angry when somebody suggests that you're not in a rational state of mind. Um, You know, when we first tried this, I would say, okay, if you think that I'm getting manic, will you say something? And he'd, he agreed to it. And then he would say something and I would bite his head off. And he's like, I'm not doing that again. That's a trap. Like Mm -hmm. that's, I'm not going to do that again. But 
But then when I would come out of the manic episode and recognize what I'd done, I felt terrible. And so we had to come up with a way for him to be able to approach me and me to receive what he was saying without getting angry with him. So that took a lot of, that took time. Um, But I, but I could see how much, you know, as a mother, once I got married and, and starting having children and, and my husband, you know, I, I didn't want to ruin my relationship with my husband and I didn't want to hurt my children. And so that was when I really tried, you know, started to try, I thought I was trying before, but that was when things changed for me. You know, I, I didn't want to hurt them anymore. I remember, I remember specifically. So in 2008, 10 years after my diagnosis, I had a massive breakdown and I was hospitalized multiple times. Um, I attempted suicide twice. Uh, and I, they did electroconvulsive therapy on me, which is, you know, they call it shock treatment. Um, I lost a lot of my memory from that time. Um, but I, I had this day after all of this, I'd been hospitalized multiple times. Um, and I, one day I was in a day treatment program. So it's outpatient. I wasn't in the hospital at the time I was outpatient. And I remember the whole day feeling like one of the things that I experienced was that a lot of times I felt like the treatment kind of fostered selfishness in the, in me. Mm. Um, you know, it was like, everybody needs to understand everybody needs to, you know, and I, I remember sitting there thinking, well, it's, it's not my fault that I have bipolar, but it's not my husband's fault either. And it's not my children's fault. Like, I don't want them to keep suffering. I've got to figure out a way to treat this. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to ask them to put up with this. I don't want them to have to put up with my children. When I would get, when I would get into these really irrational states of mind, a lot of time I experienced this really intense anger, like rage, almost like an out of body experience. I felt like I was watching myself rage at my children and, mm-hmm. and I hated that. I didn't want to do that anymore. And you couldn't stop yourself. No. It, like I said, it felt like an out of body experience. Like I, it was, I had no control over myself. And afterwards I felt horrible. Like I would sob watching my children at night sleep and just think I got to figure out a way to stop doing this. I don't want to live this way anymore. And I don't want them to live this way anymore. Awesome. So one of my questions, well, boy, I have so many questions. Um, boy, where can I take it back? So let's go back to your husband, right? When did you, or when did you too, uh, come up with a, uh, a plan that you could apply so that, or that you two could apply that you wouldn't take things so personally? What was it that, that helped to build that trust? Well, it was during that year. So, so the first my husband and I were married in 2002. So that was four years after my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And about a year later was when I had our first child together. We, I had a stepson. So I was a stepmom as soon as we got married. Mm-hmm. And then we had um, our first child together a year later. Mm-hmm. And the first, let's see, the first about six years, six or seven years of our marriage, my disorder just got progressively worse. And, and I didn't really know how to manage it. I thought I was, but it, I was being told you just find the right medications and you'll be fine. And so I was trying, but medications weren't working for me mm-hmm. and I was just getting worse. And my husband at the time was working excessive hours. Like he worked 13, 14 hour days, sometimes seven days a week. And then he was also trying to go to school at night. And so he was, you know, not often home. And it, you know, I, it wasn't my encouragement. I encouraged him to go to school because I wanted him to progress in his career. Right. Um, but I don't think that he really saw how sick I was either, you know? So it was this thing where I, I was just trying to white knuckle it and taking all the medications and doing the best that I knew how at the time. Um, and, and the, the breakdown in 2008 was the wake up call for both of us that 
this wasn't working. And, um, and it was after all of the hospitalizations and everything that I, I had this day when I was watching my daughter play. And I had this recognition that if I succeeded in taking my life, it would ruin her life. That's right. And, and so I thought I can't ever let myself get to that point again. I have to, I have to change. Something has to change. So from that point forward, that was when I started asking my husband, like, mm -hmm. Can you help me figure out when I'm getting manic and that? And and at the beginning it was terrible. You know, like I said, I would, he would say it, I'd get offended or angry and 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 bite his head off. And he thought, nope, I'm not doing that. That's not okay. And so, but then I, but I really did want his help. And so he would we decided that he would say, I I see something. Are you willing to listen to me? Uh -huh. And that yeah. was my cue for to to check myself and think, okay, my husband loves me he's seeing something that concerns him. I need to listen to him. Mm -hmm. And so I would, and it was really hard, but I really didn't want to live that way anymore. And so that was when I would, you know, listen to him and let him tell me, because my husband's a very reserved person. I'm very yeah. outgoing. He's very reserved. He doesn't say something unless he really thinks that he needs to say something. And okay. so I had to remind myself, like, if he sees something, there's something wrong. I need there to listen go. to him. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, first of all, what's his name? Scott. Shout out to Scott, okay, <laughs> for having that patience. As a matter of fact, let's yeah. get at the Scott. <laughs> you know, uh, and I mean, we talk about it, obviously, you know, and in, 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 in fun. However, it takes a lot to have a level of patience to, uh, to, and I don't want to say deal with a person, no. but to love a person that much and to see something that they may not see at that time, but willing to step above and even beyond just so they, you know, you guys can make it on the other side together. Well, and and he, I wouldn't have blamed him if he left after what happened in 2008. That, that whole year was horrible. I was, I was, my, my diagnosis changed from bipolar two to bipolar one because I had my first psychotic episode. I was swinging from manic to depressed, like almost daily, um, massive mood, mood swings. You know, one day I was in love with my husband and so grateful for him. The next day I was going to leave him because it was the worst thing in the world. Like it was horrible. And if he had left me, I wouldn't have blamed him. You know, it's a miracle that our, our marriage. So I've, and I've asked him, you know, years later, you know, I had several times when I asked him like, why didn't you leave? And he said, I don't know. And I'm, I'm grateful that he didn't because right. we have an amazing marriage now, but it took years to repair the damage from that. Absolutely. And I'm sure, and it's worth it. Right. Absolutely. So, my, so my other question is, as you, you know, got help and, and things of that nature, is this the type of, uh, I guess, sickness that is hereditary? If so, is, uh, did it come from, you know, your mother or father? And the other part of the question is, what are your thoughts about this, you know, later on developing within your, your children? Yeah. So I, there's a lot of, there are a lot of, a lot of questions still about the root causes of bipolar disorder. There's a lot of disagreement within the psychiatric community. Mm -hmm. um, but I, so my experience, I actually found a micronutrient treatment that's helped to start heal my brain. And the more that I have learned, the more that I've started to understand that there is a, a nutrition component that, that goes along with the imbalance in your brain, you know, for me, the, the missing nutrients were what were causing the chemical imbalance. It was what was causing the, the chemicals to be out of balance in my brain. And that 
can actually be hereditary. You know, there's, I, I discovered that there was a history of it, not my parents, but in my grant, you know, in one of my, my dad's side of the family, there that there was a history of mental illness there. But nobody talked about it. See. It was something that that and that generation does not talk about those things. Um, but she was in and out of the hospital when I was growing up, and I didn't know why. You know, I I knew that my grandmother was sick a lot, but I didn't know what she was sick with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with my children, you know, there's my son has ADHD. He's been diagnosed with ADHD, but I don't give him medication. We use the same treatment that I take for him, mm-hmm. and that is what he needs. Um, and my daughter, you know. I have a daughter who, my older daughter, who we think maybe there might be something going on there, but we do the same thing. Like I, thankfully, because I know how to treat my disorder now, I just help my children with the same tools. Awesome. You know, I help them with the same nutrients that that I take and that helps give their brain what it needs to be healthy. And then, you know, I've taught them the value of therapy. You know, I've taught them about exercise, you know, all yeah. of the tools that I use to stay balanced and healthy. Mm-hmm. I teach my children. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so I want to give you an opportunity, right? Tell people, what do you want individuals to know? And also uh, tell us more about the My Upside Down, right? You could talk about that as well. But what would you like our audience to know about the phenomenon, if you will, of, of bipolar? Of well, the- first of all, I I spent years thinking that the best that I could hope for with bipolar disorder was learning how to suffer well with it. I believe that that was kind of my lot in life, that the rest of my life was going to be suffering with these massive mood swings. And that my goal at that time was to learn how to suffer well with it. So I didn't, so I lessened the impact on my family, you know, Mm -hmm. but over time I started to discover that that's not necessarily true. I I don't actually experience mood cycles anymore. Um, It's taken me years. You know, I've, I've had to find what my brain needed to be healthy and balanced. And then I also had to do a lot of work with a therapist to heal you know, trauma and learn how to identify unhealthy thought and behavior patterns and, you know, all of those things so that my brain would function in a healthy way. Um, and then I, I'm very diligent about my self-care routine. You know, it's really important. It's, I used to feel kind of resentful that people, I could see people that could, you know, not really take care of themselves physically and, and they didn't seem to have a problem with it. And I don't take care of myself physically and I start to suffer mentally. (laughs) You know, I just thought, I felt like that was unfair, but I stopped worrying about fairness. You know, life is not fair. A lot of people have really bad, you know, difficult challenges that they overcome. And I thought, okay, so stop, stop looking at other people, stop comparing myself to other people. And that's key. You know, when you have any kind of illness, whether it's bipolar disorder, a physical illness, you know, looking at other people and comparing yourself to other people is very detrimental. Because if you do that, you miss out on what you could do in your life. You you stop stop losing focus on how can I live the best life possible with what I've been given, and you start worrying about how unfair everything is. And that's a really horrible way to live. Mm-hmm. And it's it doesn't help anything. It doesn't make your life better. It makes your life worse. That's right. You know. So so once I stopped worrying about look, looking at other people and feeling like my life was unfair, and focused on what do I need to do to live the best possible life I am capable of living that is when things started to change for me. And, you know, and I, like I said, it's the, one of the things that actually, the reason why I started my upside of down is because I started to get really frustrated with why wasn't I taught all of the things that I've learned? (laughs) You know, it's not like the things that I've learned are unique or special, but I had to figure them out, figure them out for myself. And that was very frustrating for me. I thought, why wasn't I given a treatment plan at the very beginning saying, 
don't worry, you know, you can learn how to live well with this. It's not going to be easy, but you can absolutely do it. And these are the steps that you take. And this is the order you take them in. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I started my blog was to teach what I learned to shorten the learning curve for other people so that they didn't have to figure it all out for themselves either. There you go. Love it. Love it. Love it. But thank you. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Please give it up for Miss Michelle. My goodness. You know what? I, I I would say that I've learned a lot, right? I learned a lot within this conversation as far as, you know, what bipolar disorder is and can be for different individuals. And also, too, I didn't know that there were different stages. So you said it was stage one, bipolar well, disorder so one. Bipolar two, bipolar two, people with bipolar two um, have hypomania. But the majority of what they're experiencing is pretty severe depression. So there's a lot of depression coupled with some hypomania. Um, I had a lot of hypomania, but my depression, the worse it got, the worse my depression got. So, but then bipolar one is characterized by having mania that has like psychotic features. So when I had my first psychotic episode was when they changed my diagnosis to bipolar one. And there are people, you know, there's, there are kind of a lot of variations within the disorder. So some people will experience, you know, mostly depression with a little bit of mania. Some people will experience almost all exclusively mania, like psychotic mania, you know, hear voices, you know, things like that. Mm. Um, And so there's a a tremendous amount of variation within the disorder itself. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your story. And ladies and gentlemen, please make sure you go to myupsideofdown.com, right? So you can connect with Miss Michelle writing, writing, girl, right? Yes, writing, exactly. writing girl. There it is, writing girl. Goodness <laughs> yeah. gracious. Uh, but, uh, but yes, but uh, ladies and gentlemen, this has been an outstanding show. And thank you again for being so vulnerable and being honest and transparent. You said something too that I want to tap on to very quickly about our generations, okay? And the generations before and the things culturally our families would do to shun that side. Right. And then we will mask it as, well, you know how he is. You know how she is. Wait a minute. It's some things not ticking right. Hey, let's find out what's going on the right way. Because if we don't identify that behavior as not normal or something may be off, it's going to just perpetuate. But we may not be able to identify those things in our, um, you know, in our offspring, if you will. So I'm very, very um, proud of how your family handled it, like your aunt, your uncle, your mother, father, you know, everyone that just helped and supported you in that and recognize those things that were going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's really important to be, that's one of the reasons why I'm so open about this is Mm -hmm. there should not be any shame associated with having a disorder like this. Yes. And it's, and it's super harmful to, to, to sign shame or embarrassment because then people don't get help. You don't have to live that way. It's not necessary. There's a way to live a healthy, balanced, productive life with bipolar disorder. Yes. You just have to identify that there's a disorder there and then treat it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you. Thank you for for being our guest here. And stand by real quick. Let me close this on up. Ladies and gentlemen, wow, 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 wow. If you haven't learned anything today, I'm going to need you to rewind that because it was very, very informational. And again, thank you, Miss Michelle, for joining us today. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I do believe we should do a part two because after this show goes live and everyone has their chance to uh, tune in, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions. And this was, I believe, should be a live show. Ladies and gentlemen, you let me know what you think about that. But um, the things that that's going on here and in the near future, y'all, I have this thing that's going on. It's called Speak Out Venice Youth Summit. Okay, this is going to be a a nice uh, nice teen summit for middle school and high school children. Free pizza and uh, speakers. We're going to have Senator Chris Christopher Belt. He's going to be there. Uh, other uh, leaders within the communities that uh, that's going to be there. We're going to have a great great time. But essentially, this. This is going to be an opportunity for you to be the voice and the change that you want to see. So I encourage you to come on now. It's going to be January 16th at the Venice Recreation Center, and it's located 305 Broadway, Venice. The time frame is 12 p.m. to 12, uh, excuse me, to 2 p.m. All right. So hopefully your kids out of school and you want to do something productive. Come on out. We're going to have a great time. But ladies and gentlemen, this has been. Remember this healing starts with you. And it ends with you. All right. And we'll talk to you soon. Later. 